Coming up on today's show, huge profits in oil and gas. What does that tell us about where we're headed with oil and gas? A big decline in the number of permanent residents who opt to become Canadian citizens, like the minority now opt to take that final step. It used to be the majority. And we'll hear a success story from someone who did come to this country and is now making great strides. We'll have their story today. So if you've been following the headlines recently, going back to uh, late 2022, December of 2022, you know, and we've talked about it here on the air, energy companies are really, really having a good go of it right now. (laughs) They are doing incredibly well. Here's just some examples. Suncor, their fourth quarter profits in 2022, up $2.7 billion, a 76% increase. Uh, the big five, as they're called, that includes Shell, Exxon, things like that. Uh, they raked in close to $200 billion globally, profits in oil and gas in 2022. So this is oil and gas profits around the world for the year of 2022 were $4 trillion. That's with a T, which is basically triple the average of recent years. Triple to $4 trillion. Usually, it's about a trillion and a half. I mean, hey... It's a good industry to be in. Uh, it's really good right now. Not surprisingly, it's the best year ever for the oil and gas industry when it comes to revenue and profit. Um, there has never been profits like this before, ever. So so how, what, what do we make of this? Uh, you don't want to make too much of any one snapshot in time. However, this is the industry that some have us believing is currently being destroyed, right, by by governments, including the one in Ottawa, um, or it's on the road to destruction. So, So what's up? Meanwhile, the crowd that's been telling us oil and gas is dead, certainly doesn't look like it, at least not yet. The truth, of course, lies somewhere in the middle. And I think, once again, it's all about timing. So let's talk a bit about these numbers and and what we can make of it. We're going to chat with Dave Yeager, an energy policy analyst, an oil and gas writer, and the author of From Miracle to Menace, Alberta, A Carbon Story. Dave, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate your time. Yeah, good morning. So these numbers, I mean, they're truly mind-boggling. They really and truly are. Let's start there. Let's just define why it's happening. It's simple supply and demand when it comes to oil, right? Oh, I don't know about the word mind-boggling. <laughs> Triple the usual I'm number? Sorry, I'd be looking at the tech sector and banks if you want to see my consistent mind-boggling profits, but that notwithstanding. No, they had a they had a good year. I mean, production has continued to ramp up. The, after the, great, the interesting thing about oil companies, it doesn't get it much credit, is how much they had to slash costs to be here in 2022. Yeah. You know, this is, this is an area that people don't understand. Like, in tw- you know, the, as we know, jobs are down. Costs are down. I mean, they're doing things in the oil sands in their terms of their operating costs. I mean, going into the down cycle, which really started in 2015 when the oil price collapsed, occurred. You know, they said the oil sands operators needed 80 bucks a barrel or whatever. Right. Yeah. A big number, right? I mean, this is the most expensive oil on earth. But necessity is the mother of invention. And so to stay in business, uh, these people have done uh, things that extraordinary things with their operating costs and their, uh, and their cash flow. So now that oil's back up, uh, they're, you know, the back of the chips for the moment. I don't believe, uh, this is sustainable for a reason, a bunch of reasons we can get to. But, mm-hmm. you know, the good news is in 2022, um, the survivors did really well because of extraordinary events that were nobody really planned for, like Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Um, because sure. the over, the renewables were oversold, that the idea that we could get out of the oil business was, 
was more uh, fiction than fact. And so the survivors had a great year, and Suncor is one of them. Yeah, and and you know you're right. It's kind of simplistic to say, oh well, you got the the the, uh, the war in Russia, and that drove up the global price. Sure, it did, and that's part of it. But like you say, don't overlook the the other parts and the way these businesses have streamlined and caught costs and uh, cut costs and and put themselves in a position to capitalize. I mean, some credit is due there too. Well, it's uh, one. Okay, this is there's two sides to this. One yeah. is that indeed they cut their costs. Uh, on the other side, a whole bunch of people lost their jobs, and so you know, six of one, half a dozen of the other. You have to remember that there's always a another side in this trade. But they did what they had to do. Most of what a lot of it's come from operating efficiencies, uh, which have been extraordinary. Is figuring out how to how to make the best of what they have. Suncor, of course, is the legacy oil sands producer, great Canadian oil sands that dates back to the 60s. So they've been at it for quite a while, and they're pretty good at it. And so, but, that, but then the other place to look is, is with these one pleasant surprise profits, because if you're in the business, is Alberta Treasury. You know, the, the royalty income from the oil sands, that ship finally came in after years of waiting. Mm-hmm. And uh, so everybody, you know, in, in, a, in a way, all Albertans benefit from this, although you wouldn't know it. But <laughs> reading the news every day. So, Dave, I'm seeing on the text line already, and this is part of the question. I mean, everybody's saying, well, wait a minute. Now the government's coming up with a plan to pay them to take care of their own wills. They've got so much money. Other people are saying, well, where's the jobs? They haven't hired anybody. They're just buying back. I mean, what does this kind of profit margin and the amount of money these oil and gas companies, what's a reasonable expectation? I mean, should, because they're not investing the way that they have in the past. I mean, what does it tell us about where we're headed? Well, the first thing I tell you about the first question is uh, the record profits and the uh, Suncor doesn't own any one right, of the yeah, wells yeah. that needs cleaning up. None. Okay. I was looking at their balance sheet this morning and they have a really off-joker uh, $9 billion reserve liability to reclaim their assets. But the, pro- the thing is the people that are making the money, like when you talk about the industry as the industry, it's not one homogeneous blob where one outfit owns everything. Uh, a lot of the companies that are making the money aren't the same ones with the legacy assets, and okay. that would be quite helpful if people would appreciate that, that who owns these legacy assets and why they own them. Is a, isn't there a why aren't they hiring people? Well, this because one of the big uh, specters looming over the oil sands is the emission caps, mm-hmm. is that this is the place that's supposed to cut their emissions by uh, uh, 42% by 2030, and although they're getting some tax credits, they're going to need a lot of cash, uh, the other thing they're doing is paying down debt. I looked up their balance sheet just uh, for this for this question, and they paid down their long-term debt by $4 billion. Like one of the things everybody went into the high year, they had to borrow too much money to stay in business until 20 and 21 and 21, 22. So there's a lot of balance sheet repair. As for the high dividends, well, again, this is you know, with the oil industry, exactly what producers ought to do with their money. <laughs> There's as many ideas as there are Albertans on what, no, they, right. ought not, yeah, on what they ought not, not to do. Uh, but one of the areas uh, that, that uh, you know, Suncor was seen as underperforming, and there's this Elliott and management um, uh, activist investor that claimed the company was poorly run and had a poor safety record. They tried to sell the downstream of business. They raised heck, got a few seats on the board. And this is the same thing that happened to ExxonMobil uh, by a little outfit called Engine One out of California at a great can fair. So a lot of these activist investors are getting all these boards and claiming what they, they do. One of the things they claim they ought to do is pay higher dividends. And one of the, and again, one, and the, the reason the investment community is demanding higher dividends is because everybody else is trying to put them out of business. So get your cash out while you can. The, the forces at play. 
on today's oil company are are really quite remarkable, and they're different than they have been before. And I mean, thanks for calling. Every time somebody like you calls and asks me about this, I go, hallelujah, we can talk about something other than big, bad oil companies looking for handouts. It's just not fair. Fair enough. And I think, you know what, we, we do need to give credit where credit's due. And I think they're working pretty hard on a lot of the things that government talks about. And I, to me, Dave, and I don't know if you agree with me or not, I think... We can sit here and listen to Trudeau and all the re- any politician say all the things that they want. At the end of the day, there's a reality that exists, and that's where the industry is. They're dealing with the reality with a mind to this aspirational, ambitional, uh, ambitious stuff that the governments talk about, but recognizing there's a reality that we need to deal with, and that's sort of where we are now. There is a demand for oil that's gone up. We need to mm-hmm. meet that, and at the same time, we need to protect ourselves because we don't know what's going to happen around the corner. There's been, we've just come through a period of multiple years when the when the only good oil company was a dead one. I right, mean, there's yeah. been a, a global effort to put Alberta, put not only put the world oil industry out of Alberta, but Alberta's oil sands in particular have, were the poster child for everything wrong with oil and gas for all back to the tar sands campaign in 2008. So if you're sitting there at the board of an oil center, you know, what, what do you do if you're a director of the company? You got the shareholders telling you you got to decarbonize on one hand. You got uh, Europe, uh, pleading for more oil and gas on the other. I mean, if you want the classic, uh, if you want the classic suck and blow of what to do with oil, go to Joe Biden. You know, there's a guy that campaigned on putting them out of business and routinely pilloried Oxxon Mobile for not drilling more wealth. Mm-hmm. What are you supposed to do? Or trots you know, off they, to Saudi they, Arabia or Venezuela and ask them to open whatever, up the yeah. Could you give me, yeah, would you please, yeah, I mean, he goes makes deals with the rottenest guys in the world to get more oil, to keep the price down so he can win the election, drains the strategic petroleum reserve, subsidize renewables, and then berates the oil companies for not hiring more people and drilling more well. So if you're sitting on the board, now what may happen is I do believe that there's been a reality check in the last couple of years with the global view on fossil fuels. Mm-hmm. We're finding mm-hmm. a lot of the activist investment fans or, uh, funds are saying, well, we were just kidding. You know, maybe the dividends, <laughs> maybe the dividends are all right, you know? And so if, if we could just do the same thing a couple of years in a row, uh, then, then I think that, uh, you know, things might change, but we, we haven't been able to do that. We're, we're in turmoil. You know, everybody goes, the, 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 it's not even the first anniversary of the big price spike. Yeah. That accompanied the Russian invasion into Ukraine. And these, these big companies are like super tankers. They, they can't exactly pivot, you know, turn around on Lake Wadman. So, uh, so, um, there you go. So I'm, uh, you know, the, the question is, is are the profits higher? I, you, I did, I objected to your adjective. Everybody likes to say that. But I haven't heard obscene <laughs> profits yet. I love the people who call them obscene because they're an expert. Well, there are people what, calling for windfall taxes. I mean, maybe they haven't said obscene, but the implications there. Of course they are. That goes back. I mean, you know, give me 10 different people on what an oil company should do. And, yeah, yeah. And I'll give you 10 different answers. You know, cut the price of gasoline. You charge, you, what the, here's what they want. Pay higher taxes. Cut the price of gasoline. You know, go, <laughs> and go out of business all at the same time. It's, it's, it's astonishing, really. But Suncor's, you know, homegrown, right back. Uh, great yeah, Canadian yeah. oil sands. It's uh, one of the legacy assets in the business. They're a big producer. I looked at 800,000 barrels a day. That's a meaningful amount of oil. Uh, they're not going anywhere. They've got a resource base that can go for years. They're committed to, uh, through the Pathways Alliance, they're committed to decarbonization. They're not going to make the 2030 target, but they want to stay in business for a long time to keep their social license. Uh, they're going to have to figure out how to capture their yep. CO2 yep. and get rid of it. Uh, small modular reactors, maybe that's in the cards. Maybe they'll quit burning natural gas for heat. 
Um, you know, I'm ho- I believe that if these people manage it properly, uh, oil will be made obsolete, and I'm hoping that when the last barrel of oil, this is responsible oil in this area. They care about safety. They care about the environment. They care about emissions. Uh, they're accountable to the governments. Um, they're not. They're not back in military incursions into foreign countries. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, they're they're, demo- they're democratic. The boards are democratic. Everything's democratic. I mean, you got to buy your oil from anybody. Buy it from Suncor. Couldn't agree more. Couldn't agree more. Yeah, Dave, yeah. That, that, I mean, that, that's what it comes down to, is the oil industry is going to exist for however long it exists, and we need to make, we have all these, we, we get ahead of ourselves is basically what it is, and then we get the reality check is what's happening now. At least that's my take. Um, okay, the debate. Oil industry's got record profits. Why aren't they cleaning up these wells? Okay, I just we just got to dig a little deeper into this thing. Okay, quickly. I've only okay. got about a minute. Well, that's all. Just you know, this has been a, a, a great, a great issue. But but over the time, the the, the the companies that are making all the profits today aren't the ones that actually own the assets that need cleaning right. up. Yeah. Just for yeah. the record. Yeah. So that's all. So you take a company that's got a. Well, this is, I think, what the premier's trying to do. I haven't seen the policy, but, uh, you know, you take a company that's got a, an old asset, a long-term liability they bought from one of these companies, and now the rules have changed, and it's real expensive to clean up. And and if they, they could go bankrupt doing it, and then it goes off to the Orphan Well Fund, or the, you know, and again, it's just, it's just, it's just such a complicated subject. And, you know, I just, every time you guys, every time you phone and say, Dave, what's going on? I'm just thrilled because that's all I do. Well, no, at least you'll give me a chance. Right. And I study this, I study this in excruciating detail. I'm an energy policy nerd. Every time you call me, I say, this is my favorite subject. And, you know, thanks again. <laughs> no, I appreciate it. And, and, and we will call often because you often uh, put it into terms that uh, make sense. And, uh, you know, it just you sort of listen to it and go, yeah, OK, I get it. That makes sense. So, uh, Dave, stand by. We'll call back again. <laughs> but I appreciate yeah, you being back. here today. Right. Have a great day, Alberta. Thanks for the call. Uh, right now, though, we talked yesterday um, with Minister Dimitrios Nicolaitis of uh, the Alberta government, the Minister of Advanced Education, talking about the new plan to um, increase the number of seats in what they call bridging programs at places like Mount Royal and Northwest College. Um, basically, what it is for international nurses to come here and take some sort of um, education training in order to um, attain Alberta certification to work as a nurse, right? So this is increasing their training or whatever the case may be. This all, you know, money for them to come and do that living expenses tuition. And I think we've talked a lot about how the shortage that we have in labor, that was specifically about healthcare, but it touches all sectors, right? Um, we focus on healthcare for good reason, but we've also talked before about the construction industry and the shortages that they have. Uh, we've also talked about hospitality industry, all the issues that they've been facing over the years. Um, it's everywhere. We just don't have enough people and it's not going to get any better internally. You know, the conversations we've had about the silver tsunami, right? Where um, as a country, it's here. We've talked about it for a long time. Well, guess what? It's it's now arrived, which means we're producing more retirees than we are new workers. We're just not replacing the workforce through our own population. Um, so the focus has fallen to immigration, and that is a priority for government, right? Um, millions of people from around the world to try and help us make up the shortfall. A million and a half in the next three years. That's the goal from the federal government. But the latest stats can info on permanent residents shows that, you know what, we got some issues around that too. Um, because a lot of these people who are arriving here and becoming permanent residents don't take the next step and become citizens. There's a big, big 
downward trend in that. So let's have a conversation about what's going on there and why that might be. We're going to speak with Daniel Bernard, who is a um, the CEO with the Institute for Canadian Citizenship. Daniel, thank you for joining us. I really appreciate your time. Hey, thanks for having me. So it's kind of interesting. It turns out these days, I guess the overall headline here is newcomers to Canada who are in the position to become, you know, citizens. They've gone through permanent residency. They're saying, yeah, yeah, thanks, but no thanks. The majority of them at this point, right? Yeah, that's right. Um, in 2001, 75% of permanent residents became citizens within 10 years. In 2021, that number had dropped to 45% who became citizens within 10 years. So we've seen a long-term and consistent decline in the market value of becoming Canadian. I think this says a lot about newcomers' experience in the country. Yeah. But I think more than that, it says a lot about Canada and, you know, calls into question a few really central tenets of the Canadian identity. We need to really look hard in the mirror and ask ourselves why it is that people are second-guessing their decision to move to Canada and what we can do to fix that because our our past has been built on this engine of renewal mm-hmm. and our future will be built on it as well. And I want to get to those reasons in just a second, but I had a, I had a question and I'm not sure if you know the answer. The people who are permanent residents but don't opt for citizenship, what does that mean? Does that mean they leave? Can they stay as permanent residents and just not take the final step? I mean, what does that mean in terms of their involvement in Canada? Um, that's a good question. It's actually an answer that I don't have for you, but we are currently investigating. I mean, permanent residence is <laughs> it's permanent, so you, yeah, you can yeah. you can stay uh, forever uh, that way. Um, but we don't know yet how many are just sticking it out with PR and how many are are leaving. And for those who leave, are they going back to the country of origin? Are they going somewhere else? We're in the process of looking into that. Awesome. Uh, uh, but overall, as we said, if you go back just uh, 10, 15 years, you can see a very clear downward trend in the number of people that are opting for citizenship. You say that reflects what's going on in our country. What do you think is going on? What? Wh- why do you think that's happening? Well, I think the first thing to recognize is that the type of people who are coming to the country has changed a lot. I mean, you were talking in your lead-in about nurses and you yeah. know other uh, skilled professionals, and, and you know we need every single one that we can to, to come here and to contribute. Um, but that's very different. When my parents came to Canada in the 1970s, they spoke very little English. They uh, One had a high school degree, one didn't have a high school degree. And so they didn't mind, you know, working... Um, entry-level jobs and, and working their way up, they, they fit that proverbial narrative of, you know, coming with $5 in your pocket and working hard, et cetera, et cetera. Well, you know, people coming today are, are way uh, more valuable yeah. than my family was. They've got advanced degrees. Some of them bring money with them. Um, they were skilled executives. They have a lot more to contribute. And our narrative about who an immigrant is has not kept up with that reality. And therefore, it's no surprise that the opportunities that are available to these people also haven't, haven't kept up with that reality. And they're telling us they've got choices. Uh, so if Canada wants to continue to build on this legacy of welcome, like for hundreds of years, I mean, this is a tradition we've inherited from Indigenous people, and it's succeeded until today. We've told people, don't just come here, but become Canadians. Build your family, build your business, build your future here. No matter where you come from, this is the place of your future. If that engine of renewal breaks down, we have some serious issues economically, like mm-hmm. you raised, but also socially, culturally, politically, um, in, you know, athletics, in every domain of society, immigrants bring new talent and energy and ideas and perspectives. That's how it's always been. If we can't keep that the case, 
Canada's got a big problem coming. So, I mean, when we talk about this, like you're right, we're, we're always advertising and saying we need skilled workers. And we, but we, then we also have the other narrative where a lot of these skilled workers arrive here and want to work in whatever field they're well-educated and experienced in, and it can't happen, or it happens very, very slowly, and it costs a ton of money. I mean, where do you see the barriers to, um, you know, what we're doing to, to make like a better experience for the people who do come here? I mean, there are a number of them, you know, in the regulated professions like doctors and nurses, you know, there's there's barriers in terms of the the colleges, the professional colleges. There's there's government barriers. I mean, you know, a lot of this, I think, ultimately, no matter which province you're in, just comes down to money. Like the governments just yeah. don't want to hire more people in healthcare. care. Um, so so there's there's that. But of course, this is this is crazy. This is stupid. Like we're in the middle of a <laughs> full-blown healthcare emergency across the country. We've got all these people who are saying, put me in, coach. I've got the skills. I want to play. And and we're saying, no, thanks, while the lineups, you know, go out of emergency rooms. Like, I mean, that's just, it's insane. But there, there's this other sector of the economy as well. Journalists, marketing managers, communications people, HR people, you know, people with other types of skills. And I think that one thing that Canada can do, and this is a role that employers can play, it's not just government, is to say, Am I, am I equipped to actually understand what it is that these people are proposing to bring me? I think that we, we need to work harder to understand what universities they come from, get a sense of the, the types of companies they come from. Like there are billion dollar companies from the Philippines that you've never heard of, but people who were senior there have a lot to contribute. Is it on them to tell us? Well, if we're saying that there's a labor shortage, maybe it's on us to find out. So I think we can all play our part. In making Canada more welcoming, and there's a social aspect is the last the last thing. You know, we have a program through our organization called the Canoe Access Pass. It gives new immigrants free entry to over 1,400 national and provincial parks, science centers, museums, galleries for a family of five. Why? So you can have fun here. So Canada is an easy place to love and a tough place to leave. Each of us as neighbors can do the same thing. You know, welcome people, say hi to them. If they like swimming and you go swimming, bring them along. Um, each one of us has our role to play because it's our collective future that's at stake. This is not just about how immigrants experience Canada. This is about the future of our country. We all have a share in an interest in getting this right. Sounds almost like a, a, we need a, a, a shift in the way we view the entire situation in terms of we really need to recognize how important an asset, how valuable uh, immigration is going to be to us as a society, as an economy, as all those things that you mentioned. We need to we need to put more value on this, and I don't think a lot of people do. To be fair, yeah, I think that's right. And we have in the past, you know, um, in in 1904, Prime Minister Laurier gave a speech um, in Edmonton, actually. Um, and he said, look, the next generation, the next century will be Canada's century because people from around the world will come and build their homes here as Canadians. And, you know, we used to give people farms when they would arrive. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, we, we, we were trying to invite them here and attract them here and give them something that can get started. So we've done this before and we can do it again. It's in our DNA. It's in the soil. I mean, this is a, this is a tradition that we've inherited from indigenous people who have welcomed, you know, newcomers to this country to this land for a long long time and thankfully that survived in the modern canadian identity we know what it takes we just got to get serious about it and it touches government economy civil society and private life each of us can play our role um, but i think it starts by recognizing that 
not all is well in paradise. It's not just all sunshine and lollipops. Newcomers aren't just happy to be here because they have no other choices. Yeah, yeah. Um, but the other side of that is, if these people do have other choices and we can convince them to say, wow, Canada, like, imagine the power that Canada can develop. Um, if we can, if we can just make right on this promise that we've, that we've built up over so many years. So the potential is still, is still there. And I remain optimistic. What is it saying, uh, to the international community about Canada, though? Has that effect been measured at all? Is there any way of knowing? I mean, I've always thought that Canada was like, you know, one of the ultimate top destinations for people looking to, to seek a better life in a new country. Canada's top of the list. Has that changed? I mean, if we're, if we have people who are not opting for citizenship or is the, you know, if it, is there a negative light that we're seeing from, from immigrants here? And is that spreading to international communities who are saying, you know what, maybe Canada isn't the place I want to go? I think it is changing, and you're right that there's a threat. Look, so far, the numbers suggest there's still a large volume of people who want to come here. Yeah, for sure. Um, the, the problem is happening after they, after they arrive. But, yeah, you're right. Like, they have family members. They have friends um, who, who could be the next generation of immigrants. And what story are they, are they sharing back? I mean, international students is a perfect example. You know, we ask international students to come here with $25,000 in cash. They have to deposit in a GIC in a bank account. And we're asking these people who come from countries where like the average income is $2,000, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so the, the, we're getting like the cream of the crop, right, yeah. like the, the wealthiest, top, most exclusive people in those societies who are coming here. They have a lot of influence in those places. Enough of them start having bad experiences, and immigration preferences could shift. Other countries are catching up. Australia is catching up. You know, so um, I think that we just need to be cognizant of the fact that we are in a global competition for talent. We have a lot of advantages that we're working with, and it's still on average, a great place to come. A lot of people are becoming citizens. I hope that we can welcome so many more people to continue this long heritage of citizenship that makes Canada, Canada. But it's not going to do it. You know, the work won't do itself. And, um, you know, we got we to gotta get with it. So that's what the Institute is doing. That's what our organization does. And that's what our canoe path does. And, you know, I'd encourage any of your listeners who have friends who are newcomers or who are newcomers themselves, download canoe, C-A-N-O-O, it's free. Um, you can you can really enjoy these benefits, and if you own a business or or run a cultural organization, and you want to contribute to the Welcome Network, you want to put your values into action. Give us a call; we'd be happy to offer um, any any deals or benefits you want to give to newcomers through our platform. It's an easy way uh, for you to put your your where your mouth is in that sense to to put your values into action. So we're doing whatever we can to mobilize Canada because there's one last thing that I want to say that Canada really has going for it: it's goodwill. Mm-hmm. Public opinion polls show repeatedly whether you vote conservative, liberal, NDP, no matter what. Um, Canadians support immigration. We believe in the importance of this. We are a welcoming people in our hearts. The question is, is how to turn that into a reality for newcomers, and that's where the work is important, and that's what I spend my days doing. Uh, Daniel, last one, I'll let you go, and it's just uh, because I got a bunch of texts from people saying that... Um they're permanent residents, and they haven't opted for citizenships because, one, it's expensive, and it's a lot of work. It's not worth it. I mean, has there been any talk around making that final step a little bit easier? Is that something you hear? Yeah, it's definitely part of the mix, right? Uh, it's definitely part of it, the, the cost of application and the whole process, and COVID has made the delays harder. But i got to say, this is, a, um, this is a, a decline that we've observed over 20 years. 
um, before the costs went up, before the pandemic stalled the applications. You know, it it, it uh, covers conservative and liberal governments. Like it's a it's a it's bigger than that. That's a factor, but it's bigger than that. Okay. And um, so, you know, this is one thing that government can do, obviously. But the rest of us also have our role to play. And I think if we pin it all on government and say. Fix the fee, fix the process, and everything will be will be better. I think that's lazy, and we're being naive. Um, it's part of the solution, but it's not the whole thing. Gotcha. Excellent. Daniel, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate you being here. All right. Earlier in the show, if you remember, we started a long time ago before we got off on many different topics, which is the beautiful thing about this show. It's what I love, so don't get me wrong. Uh, but we started talking about the fact that uh, when it comes to permanent residents opting for citizenship in Canada, the trend is distinctly down. Uh, not nearly as many permanent residents go all the way and become citizens as they used to. And the guest that we had on, who works with different immigrant organizations, says that um, you know part of that is we just don't... We're not as attractive. We don't have as much opportunity. There's lots of different reasons, but one of them he identified is perhaps we don't do a good enough job of capitalizing on the, um, I guess you could call it a resource that immigration provides us. Um, we, we entice the best and the brightest to come here, and that's who we encourage to come here, and they do. And then they have a lot of barriers to you know finding opportunities commensurate with their skills and their experience. So... Um, that's something that we can work on. And our next guest fits nicely into that conversation. Um, and he's sort of saying the same kind of thing. He's hoping that more opportunity will present itself to people like him uh, and continue to make great strides in different fields, following in his footsteps. You know, But there's a lot of work to be done. This is a perfect conversation for us to spin off into with Dr. Charles Odami Ankara, who is a senior product development specialist global analyzer systems um doctor thank you so much for joining us i appreciate your time today thank you very much how are you doing sir i'm doing very very well thank you so much for joining us to just start um congratulations tell, tell us about your recent success and the patent you were granted yeah thank you very much uh, i think um a few a few years ago um i got started with global analyzer systems and uh, and this company primarily deals with how to measure pollutants better in Alberta, as you know, Alberta has the strictest uh, laws governing emissions to ensure that uh, we keep a clean air for everyone. And global's uh, uh, expertise is to make sure that these uh, pollutants are measured correctly and accurately as to help in, uh, in the revisions of existing policies and stuff like that. And one of the pollutants, which is very toxic to humans, mm. uh, is nitrogen dioxide. It guess where it comes from? It comes from our cars um, and all combustion sources. And measuring it accurately with existing technology has been a little bit of a challenge because the, some component of the existing technology over potentially overestimates the actual levels of nitrogen dioxide we have in air. So previous uh, attempts have been made to fix this uh, um, error in measurement. Gotcha. We decided to set out to solve it. And through the hard work and dedication of the team here, we were able to create something magical that has never been done before, right here in Calgary, Alberta. Okay, so your device can detect nitrogen dioxide. How do you anticipate this could be used? I mean, obviously, there's there's no end of ways, right? Yes, yeah, I mean, 
First and foremost, honestly, if you ask me, I want to see this be used first and foremost in Alberta, in all the ambient monitoring shelters, to improve the existing monitoring tech, uh, technologies that we have to ensure that, hey, we are leading the way. If we create something, we need to use it first around the world and, and lead the path so that everyone will know that hey, Alberta is really, really into technology. That's the first thing I want to see. And around the world, around the globe, as it stands now, uh, as you know, climate change has become a big issue. And they're trying to understand why is it that most models cannot predict these molecules presence accurately on the surfaces. And it is harming us every day. It's responsible for a lot of sicknesses. We know the problem, and the problem is our inability to measure it accurately. So if we are able to measure accurately, you'll be able to build better policies to control and, and, and eliminate it eventually. Um, tell us about your background, because this is the other aspect of this conversation that's so important. Yeah. I mean, this journey to where you are now started a long time ago, far away, right? Origin you're from Africa originally. Yes, I'm from Africa. I'm from Ghana. I did my, my undergraduate studies in Ghana, and I got a full scholarship to move to the United States of America to do my master's program. Mm -hmm. So right after I was done, I, I got another scholarship to, Can to Calgary, University of Calgary, yeah. to read my PhD in air quality studies, and that's what I did. And when, about four or five months before I, I, I finished my pro program, I was introduced to, to this company doing something very amazing and trying to solve questions and do a focus on solving questions. And that piqued my interest. They embraced uh, me and brought me on board and they, uh, and they said, let's do research. We're going to do research. And one thing led to the other. So one, I, I was prepared. I got myself educated. Two, the, um, the small business was ready to allow somebody with a diverse background and the right expertise to, to come on board to, 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 to do the what they do to, to ensure that we are able to serve uh, the community better. So I see a two-way approach, uh, approach where we have opportunities available for those who are trained. Mm -hmm. If global analysis systems didn't have the desire uh, to do this, that wouldn't have been a good fit for them. And this would have happened. You know what I mean? I know what you mean. It sounds to me like yeah. you, the way it worked for you is sort of a, a textbook example of how it should work all the time and everybody wins. But I'm wondering, in your experience, your time, let's talk about your time in postgraduate school at the University of Calgary. Was there a lot yes. of people that looked like you? I mean, are we affording those opportunities? When I started, no. When I started, I would say yeah. I didn't see a lot of people like me. But personally, I made a personal decision to talk to most other professors and, and tell them that, hey, I know these brilliant, brilliant kids who are looking for postgraduate opportunities. And and say, I can tell before I left the University of Calgary five years later, the Department of Chemistry has one of, had one of the largest African students uh, enrolled in its postgraduate program. So sometimes it is people not knowing what right. is out there. People do not understand the background. And you know what's interesting? Um, I, I applied for some professional designation. They didn't even recognize my undergraduate degree from Ghana, which was, which was a shame. Really? I, I did a whole four years. I came here and it's like, oh, we consider what you did from the U.S. and, 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 and here in Calgary. <laughs> and I'm like, what about what I did in Ghana? That was the basis upon which I was granted admission and got a scholarship. But when you come into the real world, you, 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 those of us first immigrants, you see 
a situation where your your credentials are not transferred and, and, and recognized. And that has been a huge barrier yeah. for a lot of professionals immigrating to Canada. And some of the frustrations that people face. And when people get too frustrated, they lose interest in Canada. Then that's exactly what we're talking about. And then the other piece of the puzzle here, Doc, is, is like you say, it's the educational component, but also it was a small business that sort of brought you on and, and championed you. I mean, that was the other piece of the puzzle that, that made this success happen, correct? Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, it's a small business, and I can see that the current government is really pushing small businesses to thrive, and I, I, I have been a beneficiary of how small businesses can attract high talents trained in Alberta uh, instead of us allowing all these talents to leave the province. Why are we not retaining them? We are looking for talents all over the world to come. What about those that we are training and letting them go? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, it's stories like yours, I think, that sort of shine a light on the successes that can happen and and, and the good that can be done by sort of opening it up. And like it's the education, it's the opportunity, it's the business, it's everybody sort of working together and, and, and capitalizing on the resource, to put it really crassly, but we all see how the benefits pay out at the end. This is exactly what we want to see. Absolutely. That is what we want to see. We want to see um, uh, a business climate, an academic climate where inclusion it's at its core focus because when you, I was talking to the president of Global Analysis yesterday, and he said, "This is where magic happens when you allow people with different cultural backgrounds, yeah, different training, to come together because everybody can see the same problem from a different perspective, and that is where solutions come from." So um, I, I do believe that our better opening up and, and, and inviting talented individuals from around the world. It's going to create a magical environment for innovation, for technology, uh, for, for good job, good paying jobs, and, 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 and transform this province into uh, something beautiful everybody will want to come to. Doc, uh, thank you so much for joining us. It's sharing stories like yours, I think, that provide the example for people to follow. So I'm, I'm so thankful that you took time to join us today. Thank you very much, Shay, and, and have a wonderful uh, time. And thank you for inviting me onto your onto your show for listeners to hear from from me, yeah. uh, from an immigrant uh, who came here and is making an impact. It was my pleasure. Thank you so much, Doctor. I appreciate it. Thank you. Have a good one. That is Doctor Charles Odami Ankara who is a senior product development specialist at Global Analyzer Systems Limited, just received a patent for a nitrogen dioxide detector. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.